Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel, broadcasting remotely. Elderly residents in Connecticut nursing homes make up nearly four out of 10 deaths in our state from COVID-19. Half of all the nursing homes in Connecticut have positive cases. What's being done to protect the people in nursing homes and its workers? Today where we live, we talk about the state's nursing home plan. Is your loved one in a nursing home that has positive COVID cases? You can join the conversation, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Coming up, the long-term care ombudsman for Connecticut joins us, and we'll also hear from the union that represents 6,000 nursing home workers in our state. First, joining us by phone is Jenna Carlesso. She's health reporter for the Connecticut Mirror at ctmirror.org. Jenna, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. Uh, We know last night the state finally released data on COVID-19 infections and deaths in Connecticut uh, nursing homes and I think assisted living communities as well. So what have we learned from that data, Jenna? So there's about 1,700, just over 1,700 confirmed cases in nursing homes, which represents about 11% of all the cases in the state and 375 deaths. Um, which is about 39% of the state's total coronavirus deaths. I believe um, there are also... Go ahead, Jenna. Oh, sorry. There's also a, about 108 facilities that uh, now have COVID-19 positive residents. And that was my next question, thinking about, so there's more than half of all nursing homes in Connecticut have at least one uh, positive case. Are there particular parts of the state that are hard hit, uh, like we see with our different counties? Yeah, um, southwestern Connecticut is certainly part of that. Um, You know, there are at least uh, four or five nursing homes that have sort of are at the top of the uh, the range of deaths. So uh, Abbott Terrace and uh, Gardner Heights were two that topped that list. And Abbott Terrace is in Waterbury uh, with the most confirmed cases, about 69? That's right. And where's yep. the other the one? Go- uh, Gardner Heights is in Shelton. Also with us on Zoom today is Matt, Matthew Barrett, President and CEO of the Connecticut Association of Healthcare Facilities. This is an organization that represents 145 skilled nursing facilities and assisted living communities in Connecticut. Uh, Matthew, welcome to our show. Hi, good morning, Lucy. Uh, so this uh, data uh, came out last night from uh, the state uh, as a as the leader of an organization that represents 145 nursing homes and assisted living facilities. Uh, what is your reaction to this data? Because, again, you're living uh, and working uh, with uh, these organizations that have been striving to curb infection among this population. Well, regrettably, it's it's not surprising. And it's the experience um, across the country. It's the experience in the global epicenter, uh, our next door neighbor, New York. 
And, uh, uh, and despite all of the Herculean and heroic efforts to, to prevent it from entering skilled nursing facilities, uh, we have a breach. And it's the breach you just described. Over 50% of Connecticut nursing facilities now have COVID-19 presence. And, um, and the death rate is stunning and staggering, but consistent with what the science and the medical community had warned all along, that this is a deadly and pernicious and highly contagious virus. It, uh, it impacts uh, the elderly, particularly uh, those over 80, and especially those with underlying health conditions. And that really is the Connecticut nursing home population. Mm -hmm. So, uh, regrettably, it's it's hitting us hard, mm -hmm. and uh, and uh, uh, and while we planned uh, for the worst and hope for a better outcome, we're in a battle. And mm -hmm. uh, I know that's a military term, but I think it's an appropriate one, and uh, and, and one that uh, really is language I support because it, it it gets right to the issue of the, mm -hmm. the frontline workers. The, uh, the Herculean and heroic mm -hmm. effort of those workers and the amazing job that they're doing, putting their own lives on the, uh, on the line. And Matthew, you talked about a plan. So I wanted to go back to Jenna Carlesso with the Connecticut Mirror, because this week the state has opened what they're calling COVID recovery facilities. I believe one has opened, another one coming down uh, on, on Monday, I believe. Two more are also in the pipeline. Jenna, what can you tell us about these facilities and where they are? Uh, one of them is in Sharon, uh, the Sharon Healthcare Center. They've uh, already begun accepting uh, residents that have tested positive for COVID. And um, there is a facility called Northbridge, which is in Bridgeport, that is expected in the coming days to begin receiving uh, these residents as well. And then there's two uh, recently closed or vacant facilities in Meriden and Torrington. Um, one of those two is also expected to come online soon. Uh, we heard, again, uh, Matthew Barrett uh, talking about uh, this is uh, particularly troubling among the elderly population because when you look at data across our country, uh, the federal health officials saying uh, senior citizens are especially susceptible uh, to passing uh, from this uh, infection, this virus, uh, COVID-19, the disease. So let's talk a little bit about the evolution of how the state has really tried to tackle this, thinking about uh, what we saw in Washington state uh, with that particular nursing home that saw, I believe, more than two dozen residents die from COVID-19. Uh, Janet, can you walk us through the timeline of how has the state been responsive? Why are these COVID recovery centers opening this week in the middle of April when this has started in February in our country? Yeah, the first we heard of the uh, of a case in a nursing home was in mid-March. Um, there certainly was some before that, but that was the first time it was talked about at the governor's daily press conference. Um, from there, there was kind of scattered reporting of more. Um, and in the intervening weeks, there was talk about opening these COVID-positive facilities. Uh, one of Lamont's people uh, was asked about that yesterday, um, at the governor's news conference and pointed to the complexities of getting something up and running. He reflected that the CDC had made a change in guidance that that delayed it. But it, it's pretty clear also that it 
there was a disconnect uh, somewhere along the line because, uh, you know, when some of these proposed facilities for the COVID positive patients were rolled out, uh, immediately almost some of them were walked back. Um, you know, uh, Matt's group was one of the folks that, you know, had said, uh, regrettably, some of these uh, centers were named in error. Um, so, it was also plagued with uh, communication issues. Mm. Uh, Matt Barrett, uh, tell us from, from your perspective, how has the state responded again uh, to some of the early calls from um, members of nursing homes and assisted living facilities in your organization that were trying to figure out how do we handle this before this pandemic hits our state? Well, uh, it's important to note that the, the, the overall effort began really before the genesis and uh, the important idea to uh, to stand up or pop up uh, alternative recovery facilities uh, to treat COVID positive residents alone. It really began before that. Again, watching the experience in Washington State, and the uh, the effort was immediately okay. What can we do to keep COVID nineteen out of your building in the first instance? And uh, and and in that we saw. Uh, the early screening of uh, visitors to nursing facilities that eventually turned into an outright, almost an outright ban, very limited circumstances under which uh, people can visit nursing facilities. And this is tough medicine and it was uh, very difficult uh, implementation in Connecticut, but absolutely necessary and really praise and laud the governor for his strong support for a visitor we don't actually call it a visitor ban, but uh, it is very difficult to visit a nursing facility be- because we need to do everything we can to keep COVID out of nursing facilities. And so there was a major effort early on in that regard. Mm-hmm. There was also a major effort to screen screen employees. And uh, um, we learned from the Washington experience that employees are part of uh, how this deadly virus is transmitted. And, uh, and, uh, and so there was a rigorous screening pro- process, including checking uh, employees for any signs of respiratory illness. Uh, Connecticut uh, nursing homes were doing temperature checks before that was the CDC guidance. And of course, there was early, early uh, emphasis on, uh, um, on hygiene and hand washing. Science and the medical community was telling us this was a droplet uh, uh, born uh, virus. And that we could do, a, uh, we could curb its uh, its transmission by uh, by by a significant hygiene uh, emphasis. And we've done all those things, mm-hmm. and yet uh, uh, we're having the experience that other states are having, and that it's it's here and it's spreading rapidly. You're listening to Where We Live as we talk about the state's plan to deal with COVID-19 in the nursing home population. Uh, On the phone with us is Jenna Carlesso, the health reporter for Connecticut Mirror, who's been covering this story. And also uh, by Zoom today is Matthew Barrett, who's the president and CEO of the Connecticut Association of Healthcare Facilities. Again, at the top of the show, I mentioned uh, that there have uh, been nearly four out of 10 deaths in our state uh, from COVID-19 that are in 
in the nursing home population. Half of all nursing homes in Connecticut have positive cases. If you have a relative or loved one in one of these nursing homes, we want to hear from you about the communication you received. The number 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter uh, at Where We Live. Uh, Jenna Carlesso, uh, Matthew uh, is praising uh, the work uh, that the state has done uh, in dealing with this, but I want to talk more about how some of the towns have responded that have these COVID recovery centers in their communities, such as the town of Sharon. Uh, Would you say that the towns feel that there was appropriate communication between the state when this nursing home plan was rolled out? Well, um, we had heard from the first selectman in Sharon um, when it was reported early on that that was a potential site. um, He was caught off guard by it, he said, um, and had gotten phone calls from people in his community uh, raising concerns. You know, there were already uh, sort of dealing with an inflow of people coming from New York since the town borders New York. Um, and so there have been some local officials who've uh, been caught off guard or, or who have been concerned about it. Uh, we also heard uh, Matt talking about the fact that even with a visitor uh, bans to nursing homes, facilities. Obviously, staff needs to work there, and they may be bringing in, again, this virus, and it's spreading, and there's nothing that really can be done because it's so contagious or trying their best. But is the state tracking how many workers in nursing homes have fallen sick, not just the residents, but the staff? Yeah, that's something that uh, we had written about. Um, and, and at the time, they were not tracking uh, nursing home staff. Uh, this was several weeks ago. Um, right as we were about to go to publication, um, some of the Lamont people said we are going to, that's something we are, we're moving toward. Um, and I spoke to someone yesterday and they said they still have yet to get their arms around that. Uh, Matthew Barrett, uh, could you respond to, do, is it something that the state should also be tracking, the number of employees at these facilities that are falling ill? Absolutely, Lucy. But if I could just return to um, the COVID alternative uh, sites uh, and the comments related to the, uh, the standing up of the Sharon facility and what's anticipated to roll out soon in, in Bridgeport and in Torrington and other places. And I do appreciate this is very difficult um, for, the, for the communities, but it, it was an important and early leg of the, the prevention uh, strategy. And it, and it followed um, the whole notion that when COVID entered the building, remember, step one was to do everything you could to prevent its entry into the building. But when it entered the building, you had to have an isolation or cohorting. And even we, we hear the term quarantine uh, strategy to prevent its further spread. And this, these COVID recovery centers are really just an extension of that uh, that. Uh, uh, very important strategy to, to prevent all infectious disease spread. And so I really have some, uh, uh, praise for Athena Healthcare Systems for standing up uh, the, the first uh, COVID facilities. And I, I very much appreciate the governor uh, holding the rudder true and staying the course and supporting these alternative recovery centers, despite a lot of community concern about it. It's the right thing to do. He was spot on, correct, to, uh, to embrace the concept. And it's going to save lives that we're starting uh, these recovery uh, centers up. I don't think anybody in those communities should fear 
the, sp uh, the community spread of, uh, of COVID in, in, in those towns or the surrounding towns. I think the folks that are most at risk, and I, I talked a little bit about uh, the, the military sort of uh, uh, language way you use here. It's also the language of first responders too. For, uh, these employees are, they're essentially uh, running into the fire. And I don't think I'm being too, too dramatic uh, when I say that. And I know you're going to be hearing from uh, the organization representing the employees later in, in, the, in the show. And so I think that's where the focus and attention should be, is how do we uh, protect these workers? How do we support the operators in this battle against COVID-19? Well, I, uh, I, under I, I, underst yeah, I understand what you're saying, Matt, but you said the focus should be on on protecting these healthcare workers. And yes, and we are going to talk to the union, but there are plenty of people in the state who have loved ones in nursing homes and they're not able to visit them. And they see the numbers of deaths and they see the numbers of cases and they need assurances, too. Well, I, I, I think they should be assured that Connecticut nursing home operators and employees are doing everything they can to keep their loved ones safe. And, and, uh, and they are, and, and, and nursing home workers, uh, nursing home residents themselves, uh, and I probably should have said this right at the outset, they've endured a lot already. Just the mere, the, the visitor ban uh, uh, and the severe restrictions on uh, uh, visitation with loved ones has had an emotional and physical effect on them. But you know, they have been outstanding. They've agreed uh, uh, to transfer voluntarily uh, out of their rooms in support of the isolation and cohorting strategies. And they're participating in the, the, the really uh, extraordinary efforts uh, that nursing home operators are facilitating to communicate with their loved ones with, by way of Skype and FaceTime and, and uh, organized telephone calls and things like that. And so I think everything is being done. I mean, that's the essence of what uh, mm. uh, what nursing homes are about, providing that care. And they're doing the best they can uh, uh, against a, a, a very dangerous and highly contagious uh, virus. Let's talk about some other challenges. Uh, Jenna Carlesa from the Connecticut Mirror, you reported this week uh, a letter that both Matthew Barrett and a colleague of his, Mag Morelli, who's president of Leading Age Connecticut, representing nonprofit nursing homes, uh, they sent a letter to the Lamont administration. Uh, tell us about that letter because it relates to, uh, again, uh, financial resources to help nursing homes uh, deal with, uh, again, trying to get protective equipment and other issues uh, to help uh, prevent the spread of COVID-19. Yeah, um, the Lamont administration had uh, arranged a 10% emergency uh, Medicaid rate increase, and um, Matt's group and Mag Morelli's group uh, um, are are saying that that won't meet the con the, the demand for staffing, um, skyrocketing uh, cost of equipment now as more and more equipment is being used. Um, and they have asked the administration to act um, and to act this week. And so, Matt Barrett, uh, describe for us the financial challenges, again, your member uh, nursing homes and assisted facilities are dealing with because of uh, the rise in cost of particular equipment. Uh, what do you need from both the state and federal government to help keep these nursing homes from breaking down fiscally? Jenna is absolutely correct. The staffing issue has risen to the top priority uh, issue in the COVID-19 response for nursing facilities. Mm -hmm. And um, 
and it, it is a very uh, tough time to work in a nursing facility. I described it as effectively uh, running into the fire. And these workers, and no one could fault um, workers who are reluctant to to, uh, to come to work in a, in a, in a COVID-19 positive facility. And many, many are not able to do so. And, and uh, many have actually resigned, but many more are coming to work and they deserve hero pay or appreciation pay. And I've even heard it described as combat pay. All these terms are appropriate. And these nursing home workers need to be acknowledged and recognized for the, uh, for the important work that they're doing to save lives. And that requires the financial backing of the state of Connecticut. And it's accurate that um, the administration did step to the table early on, but as the crisis has unfolded, we've seen that this, we can't staff Connecticut nursing facilities to the extent we need to, re to respond to this crisis unless we're able to financially back the increased pay that really they, the workers uh, uh, deserve. And the administration, um, again, I, I have a lot of gratitude to the governor and to his chief operating officer, uh, Josh Javel, who has, uh, uh, has embraced uh, uh, the idea that more needs to be done. And we're really uh, just beginning a, a new conversation with the administration about what additional resources are needed to, uh, to make sure our buildings are staffed to continue to respond to this crisis and, um, and to assure that the protective equipment that our uh, employees uh, need to, uh, is gonna be there for them. And, and so I can report that there's good progress on that. And I'm hoping that um, package of financial relief uh, that's going to be satisfactory and get us through this disaster is gonna be on the way soon. And Matthew, when you say a package of financial relief, what do you mean in terms of amounts? Because I'm reading off of this letter again, obtained by the Connecticut Mirror that you and Mag sent to the Lamont administration, uh, writing revenue has collapsed in the wake of the disaster and costs, especially staffing costs, have escalated like no other time in our history. And so how much do you need again from the state and the federal government uh, to help you uh, continue to be operating? Well, the good news is that whatever, and there's, there's very little good news here, but whatever uh, can be provided at the state level would be, uh, under the Medicaid program, would be matched 50% by the federal government. And there's actually higher uh, federal matching rates uh, uh, available now uh, due to, the, due to the, uh, the public health emergency. But the principal cost is in the, in the staffing. And that the, uh, in order to assure that we can have a, a workforce that is available uh, to take care of Connecticut nursing home residents, remember, we get to get to this issue that over 50% of, uh, of Connecticut nursing homes have COVID positive. So the recovery centers are going to handle a, 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 a fraction of uh, the cohorting strategy, but really, we're moving towards, or we're in a place now where treatment in place in, in the remainder of the 213 nursing facilities in Connecticut is the public policy that's going to be unfolding over the next uh, month or so. And we need to staff all those buildings and we need financial resources to, to do them. I don't have a, a fiscal estimate on uh, what the total cost of that would be, but my view would be it, 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 the costs are what they are. You know, there, there, there'll be no profiteering in Connecticut's nursing home industry during this crisis. And that we'll 
submit to the government what the cost of this uh, of assuring labor in our buildings is and we'll ask for reimbursement for it you're hearing uh, you're hearing i gotta take a break uh matthew barrett but again you're hearing matthew barrett on zoom today he's president and ceo of the connecticut association of Healthcare facilities also with us by phone is jenna carlesso health reporter for the connecticut mirror and coming up right after the break we're going to talk about the union about the workers and hear from the union that represents six thousand workers in nursing homes across the state now do you have a family member in a nursing home or assisted living facility in connecticut what's your response to the state nursing home plan that we've talked about to prevent COVID-19 infections and treat those residents who have the disease. You can join us too, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We're talking about the state plan to care for COVID-positive residents who live in Connecticut nursing homes. Is your loved one in a skilled nursing or assisted living community? Are there positive cases where they live? We want to hear from you. Join us, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. I got an email from a listener earlier this week. Uh, Joan in Waterbury lost her nine year old uncle to COVID. He was a Connecticut nursing home resident. Uh, in the email, uh, Joan wrote, I hope we learn some important lessons from this pandemic. There are so many vulnerable populations with every illness like this, and there's always a learning cor- curve. But we were warned. The warning went unheeded. The first victims of this pandemic in the U.S. were nursing home patients in Washington state. Something could have been learned and done back then. It wasn't. And we are now losing this fight for this older generation. Again, you can join us 888-720-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. The people who work in nursing homes are also getting sick from the coronavirus. Uh, Joining us now by phone is Rhoda Lawrence. She's an LPN at Bidwell Healthcare Center in Manchester. Rhoda, thanks for calling in today. Hi, Lucy. Thank you for having me. I understand you have been working long hours as well as your colleagues. So describe for us what it has been like working at Bidwell over the last few weeks. Um, My co-workers are stretched to their limits. Um, Many are out sick. Um, Without proper PPE, we are unable to keep our residents safe. And it's very heartbreaking for the families as well. So when you talk about uh, your personal experience, when you're going into work, mm-hmm. tell me about the PPE that you're using uh, and what it means when you're working these long days for you personally. Um, it's very scary because we have one gown that we use for probably at least 10 days. Um, and at the end of the day, we have to spray it with and try to sanitize it as best we can. We um, use the N95 masks for at least a week also, and we cover them with a surgical mask. And we do have shields that we use, but they're disposable, but we've, we only get one, so we have to spray that down too. So it's scary, and we're thinking that we could be spreading it that way too. You mentioned that staff are getting sick. So what are the staffing levels like, uh, especially on the floor that you work? 
Um, we're stretched. They, uh, um, we don't have enough CNAs really um, to do the work that we need to do. Um, we're trying the best we can. We're coming together and working together. Um, there are other people that are there, um, the um, heads of department heads that aren't necessarily nurses are helping us too with meals and things like that. And what about uh, your residents, the people that you are caring for each and every day? Uh, how are they responding, uh, again, to not hearing? Maybe they can talk to their loved ones on the phone but not able to see them. Uh, what has been the, the impact on your elderly residents? Um, they miss their family members very much. We do have Skype that we use or FaceTime, but it's not the same. They they're upset and they really want to see their loved ones. Uh, but Rhoda, we're doing the best we can. Yeah. Rhoda, you mentioned earlier really having to stretch your personal protective equipment uh, throughout uh, your many days working. So what, what does that make you feel in terms of your personal safety and the fact that you're going home and you have a family as well? It's very, very scary. Um, we, when I get home, I just have to, um, I live with my husband and we have to have separate living quarters, basically. Um, I just take off all my, my uniform and everything and go right to the shower and do the best I can. But we have to stay with our residents. And I just want to say all my coworkers are awesome and we're just trying to stay together and be there for each other and be there for our residents, most importantly. On Monday, we'll be talking with Governor Ned Lamont on the show, Rhoda. What do you need from the state to help you do your job? We need proper PPE so we do not spread the virus from one room to the other. We need to be protected, and we need to protect ourselves and our residents. Well, I want to thank again Rhoda Lawrence for calling in. Uh, she's an LPN at Bidwell Healthcare Center in Manchester. Uh, Rhoda, thank you, and we hope that you continue to stay healthy. Thank you, and thank you for having me. Again, this is where we live as we talk about the, the state nursing home plan uh, to help uh, mitigate the spread of COVID-19, not only among the elderly residents, but the healthcare workers. Uh, the come on the Zoom with us right now is Rob Burrill. He's president of SEIU 1199, the union that represents New England healthcare workers. That includes more than 6,000 workers at nursing home facilities in Connecticut. Uh, Rob, welcome to the show. Lucy, thanks for having us on, and thanks to Rhoda and all of the other nursing home workers who are just performing heroic duty in, in every nursing home facility across the state. Uh, you can hear in Rhoda's voice that, uh, you know, obviously she's been working long hours and there's a lot of stress and anxiety that comes with that, but she's doing an important job. Uh, can you talk through uh, some of the things that she was talking about just at her particular place at Bidwell in Manchester and what you're hearing from your other members? Yeah, look, I think the first thing that needs to be said is that, that you know, folks go into nursing home work really because they, they love the vocation of caring for the elderly and for folks who no longer can take care of themselves. Um, and, and as a society right now, we are asking for unbelievable sacrifices from nursing home workers, all healthcare workers in general, 
but particularly given uh, the, the, the fatality rate in nursing homes, you talked about it earlier, 40% of the fatalities in the state of Connecticut are of nursing home residents. So this crisis is really showing us, you know, sort of uh, who is seen and heard in our society. The uh, residents in nursing homes are overwhelmingly poor. To uh, enter a nursing home from Medicaid, you have less than $1,600 in assets. Uh, uh, disproportionately black and brown. Uh, the workforce is over 80% women, overwhelmingly black and Latina. Uh, we know that 40% of the, the COVID-19 diagnoses overall in the state of Connecticut are of black and Latino citizens uh, uh, of the state. Uh, we know that African-Americans and Latinos die at about twice uh, the rate of, of uh, white Americans. So there's a racial justice and an economic justice aspect uh, to, to this whole challenge. And so this workforce, just at the federal level, it has to be said, has not been seen, has not been heard, has not been taken into account. They're asked to make incredible sacrifices, accept incredible risk. Okay, we have two members of our union who have made the ultimate sacrifice, mm -hmm. Lucille Johnson from Parkville Manor and Wintonbury Care Center and LPN, Angelina Bernadelle, an LPN from West River uh, Rehab Center in Milford. Uh, both of whom contracted the coronavirus and uh, uh, tragically lost their lives. Uh, uh, workers are, as Rhoda was talking about, uh, concerned that because of the lack of basic protective equipment, in, case, in a number of cases, we've had workers take photographs and text them to the union of themselves in trash bags. They've had to fashion personal protective equipment out of trash bags. Uh, and so uh, there's a risk, obviously, there of transmitting from one resident to the next, from resident to worker. And then, of course, the virus comes home with workers. And we know of circumstances where uh, workers have gotten family members sick in some cases where the family members are literally fighting for their own lives. Mm. Rob, uh, we heard earlier from Matthew Barrett. Uh, um, Rob, can you hear me? I know you're joining by Zoom. By Zoom. Can you hear me right now? Yes. Um, we heard Matthew Barrett talking earlier about uh, these frontline workers really are first responders um, as well because they're doing a necessary work. They're working with a, a population uh, that needs skilled nursing care. When it comes to testing, if a worker at a nursing home feels like they're getting sick, uh, are they able to get priority testing? Is that something that the state can help with? Well, we, the testing cost is free through the efforts of, of the state and, and Governor Lamont has shown real leadership in getting out on front on, on a number of those questions like testing. Uh, but there still is a challenge in terms of availability uh, of testing. Uh, and one of the real problems in nursing homes is this is a low wage workforce. So in many cases, folks have out of pocket expenses that can run up to $20,000 a year. We're asking these workers without the proper protective gear to go into the nursing homes to care for the most ill and the most sick, and they don't have the protective gear to keep themselves healthy, when they or their family members get sick, they're going to run into out-of-pocket costs, which may force them into bankruptcy, costs that amount to almost what they make in an entire calendar year. So that's one of the real issues that we need to come up with a solution for as a state is how we make sure that our frontline healthcare workers get the health coverage that they deserve as it were, we're asking them to, to, to make the sacrifice and take the risk of caring for folks without the equipment that they need to stay healthy.
Uh, Matthew Barrett is uh, still with us on Zoom. Again, uh, he is president and CEO of the Connecticut Association of Healthcare Facilities, which represents 145 skilled nursing facilities and assisted living communities in Connecticut. Uh, Matthew, to Rob Burrill's point about making sure that they these workers have accessible health care, uh, they're making minimum wage. I mean, how do you respond? I agree with Rob 100%. Um, I can't think of no other thing that we should do then to provide an assurance to these workers that they are, are, are not going to suffer financially for when they're putting their own lives on the line. And frankly, as you heard from Rhoda earlier, and even putting their families at risk when they, when they uh, return home from work. And so, yes, we, uh, there, many of the uh, employees are in traditional um, health insurance plans with high deductibles and co-pays. I think we should be making an effort to try to cover those costs to, pre- to prevent uh, uh, the kind of financial catastrophe uh, that Rob just mentioned uh, is at the doorstep of these workers. So, yes, more needs to be done there, and we fully support that work and would roll up our sleeves to, uh, to bring about a good outcome there. Uh, Rob Burrill, again, from SEIU 1199, the union that represents New England healthcare workers. Uh, before we let you go, uh, what are some next steps or actions you want to see uh, to help uh, these workers in these nursing homes? Well, Matt spoke to the funding question, which is absolutely vital on a number of the different questions. You know, the, the national shortage of PPE means that uh, costs for protective equipment are higher than they would normally be. Uh, you know, using N95 masks, for a week, as Rhoda described, is, is uh, just not safe. And again, in, in certain circumstances, we've seen that healthcare workers are having to fashion protective gear out of trash bags, so wearing their own masks. So PPE is a huge need. Additionally, Matt spoke to the question of staffing. You know, the illness has spread throughout around 15 facilities that are in our union to the point where you know staffing is really just collapsing. So the question of hazard pay or hero pay, as Matt stated, it is vital vital so that we can make sure that healthcare workers are, are able to come in and give the residents all that they need, you know, particularly given the, the, the heightened level of, uh, of acuity for all of these residents. And then finally, again, the, the, the question of uh, expanding healthcare coverage to any frontline worker uh, that, that has contracted COVID-19 or transmitted it to members of their own families uh, that is a must. That is a must. We, we have to, as a society, show that these workers who we're asking so much of are as important as the airline industry, uh, the major corporations around the country, uh, Wall Street, which have, you know, we're spending hundreds of billions of dollars on. We need to show the same uh, uh, level of importance uh, to folks who are, are taking a risk every single day that they show up to work uh, and doing their labor of love, but doing it without the, the vital resources that they need to stay healthy themselves. Rob Burrell, thank you for joining us today here on Where We Live. We appreciate it. Thank you so much. Also with us was Jenna Carlesso from the Connecticut Mirror. She's the health reporter for ctmirror.org, and you can read her stories at that website. We'll tweet out some of the links. Uh, Matthew Barrett will stay with us as we continue our conversation about, again, how the state uh, can help both uh, elderly residents in nursing homes and assisted living facilities, as well as the workers at these particular facilities. You can join us too. The number 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live.
This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. This programming note, uh, Governor Ned Lamont will be calling into the show on Monday, and we will also be hearing from the State Department of Labor. So we hope we hear from you as well on Mondays where we live. Now, today we've been talking about how the state of Connecticut is responding to prevent more elderly residents in nursing homes and assisted living facilities from contracting COVID-19. Uh, this week, uh, we heard from Jenna Carlesso at the Connecticut Mirror uh, that the first COVID recovery centers are opening. These are designated nursing home facilities uh, or units uh, for uh, elderly residents who are recovering from COVID. Uh, Kevin's calling in from Waterbury. Kevin, what's your comment or question? Yeah, um, um, my name is Kevin Brophy. I'm an elder law attorney for Connecticut Legal Services. We're one of the three legal aid programs. And, and, and this is a kind of a, um, it's a, a related issue, but it's not directly on what you've been discussing, but it's in regard to nursing home residents. And um, there are currently still going on right now, there are discharges taking place, not related to people testing positive for the COVID-19 virus. And what we've been um, advocating for the governor and the different state agencies is that during this pandemic, nursing home residents shouldn't be getting discharged out into the community. And, and um, again, we're not talking about setting up the issue that you've been discussing about uh, separate COVID-19 facilities. We're talking about just normal discharges are still taking place in Connecticut right now well, during this pandemic. So. Kevin, thank you for bringing that up. We only have so much time. I did want to bring in uh, Maraid Painter, who's Connecticut State's long-term care ombudsman. Uh, Maraid, welcome to the show. Thank you. Maraid, can you thank hear you me? for having me this morning. Yep. Hi, uh, Maraid. So we just heard from Kevin, who said he's an elder law attorney. Um, he's worried about uh, nursing homes transferring discharging residents into the community during this pandemic. Uh, how do you, is this something that you're hearing from family members at all? Yes. So um, thank you for calling Kevin, Kevin Brophy, who we um, we work with very often from Connecticut Legal Services and is a huge resident advocate, as is his um, agency. We have um, we are in agreement with Kevin and have communicated with both the Department of Public Health and the Department of Social Services regarding involuntary transfers or discharges out of nursing homes and residential care homes at this time. Um, we did receive information back from both departments that they are they're looking into this. They are going to be getting guidance back out and a formal decision. Uh, we did also raise it to the governor's office. Um, we received a letter from Kevin and his colleagues, and this is something that we feel very strongly about and agree with him in moving it forward and feel like at this time, individuals should not be um, involuntary, involuntarily transferred, but that homes, nursing homes, if it's due to payment, if it's due to level of care, that the nursing homes in honoring that should be um, made whole as well and should be able to be um, paid through the time when this crisis is over. Now, when we're talking about specifically uh, the COVID-19 plan, again, opening up, I believe, uh, at least there's four uh, nursing homes that they hope to have some units or areas for elderly residents who are recovering from COVID-19. Maraid, what are you hearing from families who have questions about the care that their loved one may be receiving as we're dealing with this pandemic? The main thing that we're hearing from families is they just want to make sure that they have 
clear communication. Um, we know that that's been a challenge at times in some of the nursing homes because the staff is very dedicated. They're dedicated to taking care of the individuals who are living there. Um, and in doing that, it has been a little bit challenging, I think, at times for homes that are um, responding to individuals who are ill to also be available to be answering the phone. Mm-hmm. We have advocated that nursing homes that are, they can't have visitors right now. Residents and their families cannot communicate in that way. Um, and so having someone assigned or hired to manage phone calls, to get phone calls in and out of residents' rooms, the video chatting, we're really promoting that and asking that homes do that to the best of their ability. We also understand that it's challenging to get individuals to go in, right? They're on the front line. Um, these individuals are, we're indebted to them at this point. They are heroes. They are going in. They're caring for the most vulnerable individuals in our society. And without them, we would have no success against COVID. So, you know, trying to honor that, hear what families have to say. Many family members have strong relationships with staff. They trust them. They trust them to give the care and services to their loved ones. And they just want to be able to have that contact and update. I want to take a call now. Rob is calling from Burlington. Rob, you're on the show. Good morning. My story is my father had hip surgery at UConn and was transferred to a a nursing home for rehab, and they tested him for COVID as a condition for the nursing home to accept him. But we had to wait four or five days for the results to come back. Meanwhile, he was placed at the home in the COVID wing, but in isolation. His door was closed, even though his bed was more than 20 feet from the door. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had, could only see him through the window. He didn't get the rehab that he was there for because he was in the COVID wing, and they couldn't bring anything in that he might contaminate. Then we got the results back, and he was negative but they wouldn't transfer him out because he'd been there for a while and they wanted to do another test. Meanwhile, he died. I'm so sorry, Rob. We're really sorry to hear that. Um, Maraid Painter is with us, who is the long-term care ombudsman. Uh, Unfortunately, there are many stories like Rob's, uh, people who've lost their loved ones who are in nursing home facilities. Uh, What can you tell um, these families who are concerned, who feel like they don't have any control because their loved ones are in these facilities and they know this virus is so contagious? Um, We feel, everyone I think feels very out of control, right? There, There isn't a way to control this virus. I do think that the facilities are highly motivated to keep the virus out of their homes, to protect the individuals that are there, and to protect the staff caring for them. The challenge is that without the ability to go in and see someone, that individual was a newer resident, the family being able to maybe um, identify some changes, um, it's hard because that partnership is usually a large component of care for an individual, the partnership between the resident, their family, and the care team. And without that, it makes it more challenging and it's harder for staff to know and maybe see signs. Um, We're hearing stories like this. We do know that the ability to keep the door closed is something that is a CDC guidance for um, protection of the building. However, again, that 
that's more of a isolation for the individual and less eyes able to be on. We just have a couple minutes left. Uh, Maraid Painter, again, is the Connecticut's uh, state long-term care ombudsman. I understand that you've been doing some Facebook Lives where people can ask you questions in real time. Can you talk a little bit about um, how people can find you on Facebook and if they've got concerns because their loved one, again, is in a nursing home or assisted care facility as we speak? Absolutely. Um, thank you for that. Yes, we um, are doing, I'm doing Facebook Live on Monday, Wednesday, and Fridays at 530. Um, people can go to the Connecticut Long-Term Care Ombudsman Program website, and it'll be posted there, and they can join us. Um, I have been incredibly fortunate to have um, the Bureau Chief from the Department of Public Health, Barbara Cass, as well as the Medicaid Director, Kate McAvoy joined me and uh, they have made themselves available to answer questions from residents and families in live time. Um, I think the one thing that we're hearing consistently is people want information. This has been a very fluid situation and the guidance at both um, a federal and state level has had to change pretty rapidly over time, um, which is unusual in this kind of a setting. Um, we're glad that the guidance is changing and they're trying to stay up with um, the virus and containing the spread of it. However, that can be very challenging for residents, family, and staff to adapt to. We're going to have to leave it there, but this is obviously a conversation that we'll need to revisit. I want to thank, again, Maraid Painter, Connecticut's long-term care ombudsman. Also, Matthew Barrett has been with us throughout the hour, president and CEO of the Connecticut Association of Healthcare Facilities. We thank you uh, for your time, Matt. Uh, today's show produced by Carmen Baskoff. Uh, Tess Terrible on the phones today. Our tech producer is Kat Pastor. I'm Lucy Nalpithanchel. Thanks for listening. <laughs>